This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Please note, all myths and legends have variations, and the story you're about to hear is not intended to be read as a definitive interpretation. We've combined several accounts of the gargoyle to bring it to the center of this dramatic retelling and to truly emphasize the character and ferocity of the monster. The morning sun signaled the end for those that were condemned. The jailer lined up the prisoners, checking that their chains were secure before the bishop arrived. It had rained the night before. The stone gargoyle protruding from the nearby church dripped black water from its gaping mouth. A grotesque sight. But for these prisoners... It was also a symbol of hope, of potential salvation. The bishop arrived and went inside the church to pray, while the executioner ensured that the chopping block was secure. The prisoners eyed the dark bloodstains left by the countless men who had lost their heads over that wooden stump. The bishop emerged from the church Bible in hand, he moved along the men. He offered each of them their last rites and the chance to confess their sins before their time on this earth had ended. The bishop stopped at the last prisoner. He stood taller than the others, and his eyes sparkled with a strange fire. He had not yet been broken by the stagnant purgatory of imprisonment. That one, the bishop said, drawing a finger over the man's forehead. Without a word, the guards moved and released the man. They gave him fresh clothes, sturdy boots, a bag of supplies and coin, and sent him on his way. The released prisoner thanked the bishop for his kindness and swore that he would earn his salvation. As the exoneree made his way out of the village, he stopped once more to consider the gargoyle mounted over the church. 
It was because of that gargoyle and its kind that he had been offered his freedom. He would never forget it. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creation of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This episode is about the gargoyle. Today, most know gargoyles as the stone-sculpted spouts that adorn cathedrals and churches. Largely associated with Gothic architecture, gargoyles divert rainwater away from the roof of a building in order to prevent water damage. While these creatures can be found in Catholic imagery and tableaus from the early Middle Ages, research shows that there is really one key definitive origin of the monster's legend, the story of Saint Romanus. They stand above, perched on their stone precipices, always watching, never blinking, Wings stretched, jaws gaping, hideous and beautiful and eternal. They are the gargoyles. A perfect combination of form and function, the gargoyle is more than art. Their gaping mouths are used to divert water away from the building's roof in order to prevent damage to the structure. A statue that does not serve this purpose is technically called a grotesque, meaning that the bat-winged statues shown coming to life in animated films and TV shows are not truly gargoyles at all. The practice of adorning the spouts of buildings with animal likenesses dates back to ancient Egypt, but the dragon-like creatures that are commonly used as gargoyles today originated in medieval Europe, Long before these mythical creatures became a fixture of Gothic architecture, they appeared in the stone tableaus of Catholic churches. Often they were depicted as Satan's demons, preying on the sinful. But somewhere along the way, they went from being symbols of evil to our ever-watchful protectors. To explore the origins of the gargoyle, we must look into the annals of a Catholic legend— one that tells of a priest who traveled to a region of northern France in order to do battle with a monstrous evil. 
Guillaume could already feel the sweat drenching his cotton shirt as he half-dragged the oversized bucket toward the riverbank. The town well had run dry weeks ago, and there had hardly been a drop of rain. Desperate, the citizens of Rouen had turned to boiling river water to drink. And today, it was Guillaume's turn to fetch the water. He lugged the bucket to the river's side and set about removing his boots and rolling up the legs of his pants. This was no way to live. Of that, he was certain. The town was cursed, and all who lived there would surely be better off by leaving it. But the town council had voted on this exact issue many, many times, and the verdict had always been the same. They would live, or more accurately, die, with this land that they called their home. Damn! Guillaume cursed as a mosquito burrowed its way into his neck. The drought, the heat, and the flies made him almost wish for death. Surely hell couldn't be worse than Rouen. Guillaume was so caught up in his own irritation that he didn't see the movement below the surface of the water. What at first seemed like a school of shimmering fish was something more, something bigger. The creature's snout broke the surface of the river, blowing hot breath across the shimmering water. Guillaume glimpsed it only briefly, its slender, snake-like body, leathery wings, and gray scales, before it struck. Guillaume didn't even have time to scream before the creature buried its razor-sharp fangs into his neck and dragged him below the water's surface. When his wife realized Guillaume was missing, she went to the river in search of him, all she found was blood-stained mud on the soaked riverbank. The Gargouille had claimed yet another victim. For months, the region of Rouen had been victimized by this sea snake, which sprung from the river to pull hapless villagers to their deaths. The town elders had been slow in mobilizing a response to the creature, but with Guillaume's death, they found the pressure mounting. At this point in the story, the gargoyle bears characteristics more commonly associated with a better-known mythological creature, the dragon. During the Dark Ages, the common perception of a dragon wasn't the massive, winged behemoth that we know today. Rather, a 7th-century European dragon was more akin to a very large, four-limbed, winged snake which developed from the Greco-Roman conception of the creature. Most dragons conformed to this standard idea, and few individual dragons were noteworthy enough to warrant their own names. But the Gargouille demanded special consideration, especially due to its relationship with water. That night, the villagers gathered before the church in the town center. Action was a necessity, these men and women would not stand idly by and wait to be picked off one by one by this scaly beast. One man barked, No rain comes, and now we cannot draw water from the river. Another replied, 
we will die of thirst. Better to die that way than end up in the monster's belly, yelled another. We must be calm, the local bishop cautioned, to the ire of all. But the people could not be calm. Another spoke, send word to Paris, have King Clovis send men with swords and nets so they can cut the creature down. With what money, the bishop retorted. Armies are not cheap, and besides, what good will armed men be against a great water serpent? We have to do something, someone shouted. On this, the town agreed. The villagers could not rely on anyone else coming to rescue them, so they decided that they would take the fight to the creature themselves. It was decreed that every able-bodied man would gather whatever tool or weapon he could find. At dawn, they would march to the river and kill the Gargui. The next morning, all of the men armed themselves and ventured to the riverbank, ready to take the creature down with pitchfork and hatchets. The morning water was cool and still. The men waited for hours. Finally, one of them waded out into the river until the water was at his waist. The other men followed suit until they were all half-submerged, ready to fight the creature on its own turf. The fools. As soon as the first man was pulled below the surface and devoured, the others dropped their weapons and fled. Who were they to think they could take on this creature? Farmers and merchants, all of them. No warriors. As the men fled for their lives, the Gargui rose out from below the water's surface, opened its mighty jaws, and unleashed a torrent of blistering flames. The men fell, one by one, as each of them was burned alive. Satisfied that its enemies were slain, the Gargui retreated back into the water, the women, children, and elders of the town rushed out toward the riverbank to where their sons, husbands, and fathers had fallen. One woman fell to her knees beside her husband's charred corpse. Curse you, foul beast! May you be struck down by God himself, back to the pits of hell from whence you came! As if in response to the curse, the dragon rose once more from below the surface of the river. It opened its mouth as if to blow fire on the remaining villagers. The people screamed and covered their heads, waiting for the burning embrace of death. But the dragon did not breathe fire this time. Instead, it gushed a massive stream of water from its gullet, uttering a terrible gurgling sound as it did. The creature sprayed out so much water that it flooded the riverbank, washing the mourning villagers away with their dead and covering the entire town in a violent tidal wave. When the water subsided, the creature was gone, as was the town, 
everything the few survivors owned, their homes, their valuables, their livestock, had been washed away in the flood. All they could do was pray. Next, the survivors of the Gargouis attack receive help from above. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The people of Rouen, long plagued by the dragon that dwelt beneath the waters of the river Seine, had attempted to fight back against the monstrosity. For their efforts, they were completely, utterly devastated. The men of the town were burned alive by the creature's fiery breath. The entire town was wiped out when the creature bellowed a tidal wave of water over the surrounding land. The few survivors were left with nothing but the soaked, tattered clothes on their backs. When travelers passed by and asked what had caused this desolation, the survivors replied, It has no name but Gargoui, for that is the noise it made when it sprayed a devastating wave from its gullet. After losing their village to Gargoui, the people of Rouen were hopeless, homeless. More than a few of the survivors felt that God had abandoned them. Until one day, a priest came before them. His name was Romanus. Romanus was the real-life bishop of the region of Rouen during the early to mid-7th century. Though very little is known for sure about his life, his legend is much more interesting. As the story goes, Romanus had received word of the people's plight. He knew that, as a man of God, it would fall to him to lead his fellow believers through these dark times. Times were hard, and living was tough. The last thing Romanus needed was these people thinking that God had abandoned them. Romanus was not a young man anymore, but he was spry and clever, and most importantly, he knew that God was on his side. When he heard of the Gargouis' devastation, he packed a bag and set out, not for the afflicted village, but for a nearby hamlet, one whose help he knew he would need. Romanus bellowed his announcement as the people gathered around him in the town circle. People of Rouen, I have come with grave tidings from your countrymen. A dragon infests the Seine River, and it has claimed the lives of many men in the neighboring village. One man barked back. They knew of the threat months ago, and yet they chose to stay where they were. Their pride in their precious land has led to their ruin. Romanus shook his head in disappointment. Come now, is a man not entitled to the fruits of his labor? 
How would you feel if tomorrow your homes, your families, everything you owned and held dear was snatched away from you? I do not know how this dragon will be done away with, but I know that we have a duty to our fellow Christians to open our homes and our hearts to those who are in need. The people were not convinced. They feared that opening their homes to the survivors now would just lead the dragon to their doorstep. But Romanus assured them otherwise. He had consulted the church's bestiary and determined that the creature was different from a normal dragon. It made its home in the water, in the River Seine, and it seemed unlikely that the creature would stray far from that location. With his promise that the dragon would not leave the River Seine, Romanus had convinced the villagers. With their blessing, he set off for the remains of the village destroyed by the Gargoui. He walked for many miles, wondering when he would come across the remains of the village. He had seen war and he had seen wastelands, but he had seen nothing like the wet, charred remnants of what was once fertile soil that now stretched before him. It was only after he heard the sounds of someone weeping nearby that he realized he had reached the village, or what was left of it. Come out, I will not hurt you, Romanus called. Slowly, the haggard survivors emerged from the holes in the ground where they had been hiding. Romanus's spirits fell at the sight. There were barely a dozen women and children, all clearly starving, sick, and hopeless. They eyed him warily and did not speak. Romanus broke the silence. I bring word from the neighboring village. You are all to come with me. They have shelter, food, and warm beds, water with which to clean yourselves. We have had enough of water, one sickly boy said. The Gargoui will see us all drowned before the week is out. Romanus tried to offer comfort. Have faith, young lad, for together we will recover. Through God's wisdom, one of the survivors cut him off. God? Where was God when the Gargoui ate our husbands, or when it torched our sons, or when it conjured black water from the pits of hell itself? Romanus had no answers. All he could offer was bread and hollow words of comfort before he finally started back in the direction he came. The people said nothing as they meekly fell in line. They had no fight left in them and nothing to stay for. When they arrived at the neighboring village, the survivors were taken in by their fellow countrymen. They were granted fresh clothes, warm food, shoulders to cry on. As the rest of the village retired to their beds, Romanus found himself unable to sleep. Who was he against such a creature? How could he possibly hope to destroy such a monstrous beast? As he normally did, Romanus found solace before the altar. He entered the village church, dark and empty given the late hour, and kneeled before the crucifix. 
He waited there for many hours in solemn meditation, hoping that God would see fit to guide him. The morning came too soon. Romanus emerged from the church, eyes red, weary from a lack of sleep. He wondered if he had the strength to do what he was about to propose. Romanus trembled as he spoke, for even he was not immune to fear. We must be brave. We must take our fate into our own hands. The survivors continued to balk. One said, What of God? Aren't you types supposed to tell us that God will fix all our problems if we only believe? Romanus shot back, If you chose to stay inside a burning building and perished from the flames, would you say it was God's fault for your demise? God gave us minds. He gave us will. He gave us the grit to achieve the things in life that must be done. What do you propose? One villager asked. Romanus responded, It's quite simple, really. We kill the Gargui. Romanus continued speaking, his courage rising. I have a plan, one that would see the creature lured away from its aquatic lair, out into the open where we could more easily kill it. And how many of us do you expect to risk our lives to see this plan through? The villagers asked. Romanus stood confidently. Just one. I need only one companion for this to work. Is there any among you who are brave enough to stand with me? The villagers stayed where they stood, none of them moving. Romana spoke, defeated. All right, then. Someone take me to the cells. I would have words with the sheriff of this town. The villagers obliged leading Romanus to the large hut where the sheriff resided. Inside, Romanus found a row of cells, each one filled with a criminal who was awaiting execution. Romanus considered the men and finally approached the one who seemed to be the most able-bodied. Romanus pointed a finger at the man. You, what is your name and what is your crime? I'm called Philippe, sir the prisoner responded. I robbed a man on the road. You will do. Romanus turned to the others. Release this man. He is my companion now, for none of you were brave enough to join me. And so the villagers released Philippe to Romanus's charge. Romanus saw that Philippe was bathed, clothed, and armed with a dagger. The next morning, they set off to kill the Gargui. Next, Romanus faces the Gargui. Now back to the story. The name gargoyle comes from the French word gargui. This word seems to stem from la gorge, the French word for throat. The name shares an etymology with gargle, or to wash one's throat. Gargoui is a form of onomatopoeia, or a word that sounds like the thing it describes. 
In the story of Romanus and the people of Rouen, the sound of gargling water signified that the gargui was close and that death was nigh. Romanus had come to the region of Rouen. The people there had been savaged and terrorized by the sea snake known as the gargui. He had led the survivors to safety, but when he asked the people of Rouen to join him on his quest to kill the beast, not one person stepped forward to volunteer. Romanus was forced to conscript Philippe, a condemned man, from the village prison. And so the two set off toward the Seine River. As they walked, Romanus urged Philippe to be brave and to follow his commands. They would only have one shot at taking the creature down. If they hesitated even for a second, they would likely meet doom. It was not long before they came upon the bank of the River Seine, close to the village that the Gargoui had destroyed. Philippe, on Romanus's command, waded out into the water until he was waist-deep in the frigid river. The man shivered, rubbing his arms. "'I hope the beast shows up soon before I freeze to death,' he shouted, only half-joking. Romanus didn't respond. At the water's edge, he waited, eyes on the unbroken surface, waiting for sounds of movement." An hour passed, with Romanus waiting at the river's edge and Philippe standing in the waist-deep water, until Philippe suddenly cried out in surprise. Something just brushed past my leg. Romanus leapt to his feet, fishing into his bag for the small crucifix he had brought with him. It was time for battle. The gargui emerged from the depths of the water, Romanus froze just for a moment as he beheld the creature for the first time. Its black, scaly skin, its long, twisting, snake-like neck, its black, devilish eyes, and its maw lined with razor-sharp teeth, hot with steamy breath, and about to snap at Philippe. Romanus regained his senses and sprung to action. The creature hissed in agony, reeling back as Romanus held out the cross. Romanus pressed his advantage as the creature writhed. He bellowed at it, "'By the power of God Almighty, I cast you from these waters!' The creature hissed in pain and slithered out of the water, running along the riverbank. Romanus chased it with the fervor of a younger man. He knew, at last, that the Lord was on his side. He would emerge victorious over this creature. Philippe followed Romanus after the monster. They reached the entrance to a dark cave just in time to see the gargui scurry inside. The two men stopped for a second, to catch their breath. Philippe glared at Romanus as he wrung out the water from his soaked shirt tails. He was shaking with fury. He knew he was supposed to be the bait. That was part of the plan. But now that he'd actually seen the creature, he couldn't believe he'd listened to Romanus. 
this priest was going to get him killed for sure. You escaped with your life. Let that be enough, Romanus replied. The two men stood at the threshold of the cave, waiting for the creature to emerge. We are here! We are waiting! Romanus yelled into the abyss. He knew they couldn't defeat the creature in darkness. Romanus turned to Philippe, his voice urgent. Your dagger! Quick! Draw blood! Philippe hesitated for a moment, but the priest had led him safely this far. The former prisoner drew his knife and slid its blade across his arm. Blood dripped on the ground, the scent of it wafting into the cave until... The creature emerged from the shadows, snapping at Philippe, hungry for his blood. Romanus once again raised his crucifix and cried out in a firm voice, Halt! I command you! The creature writhed in pain as it fell at Romanus's feet. So long as he held the cross, it could not disobey him. Romanus had been granted power by God himself, and through his grace, he had tamed the beast. Romanus got Philippe's attention and nodded toward a thicket of vines nearby. Grab those vines, wrap it around the creature's snout so that it can't open its mouth. Philippe did so. Meanwhile, Romanus lifted Philippe's knife, keeping one hand raised, cross aimed at the creature. He jammed the knife into the cloth and cut through the fabric. When Philippe finished wrapping the creature's snout with the vines, he pulled the tatters of Romanus's robes and tied them into one long rope. The two men now had a leash with which to lead the creature. The villagers of Rouen gasped when they saw the creature approaching. Alarms were sounded, men were roused, weapons unsheathed. But Philippe called out to them, ordering them to lay down their arms. The people did so as they saw the truth. The creature was bound, helpless, harmless. They cheered as Romanus and Philippe led the Gargouille to the town square. Romanus issued commands. They needed a cage that would hold the beast. The villagers quickly got to work, and before long they had constructed a hefty wooden cage. Romanus led the creature into the cage. Only then did he finally lower his crucifix. As the Gargouille regained its senses, it began to thrash against the walls of its prison. It made to breathe fire onto the human, but it found that it couldn't open its snout. It was trapped. Romanus left it to the people of the village to decide the monster's fate. The survivors decided unanimously that the creature would be burned alive, mirroring the fate it had dished out upon their slain husbands and sons. And so the creature was put to the torch. It screamed in agony as the flames melted its gray scales and scorched its flesh. In the morning, the creature and the cage had been reduced to ashes, save for its head. 
The villagers inspected the remains and saw sundered flesh around the gargouille's snout. It was fireproof, a byproduct of the flame the creature once breathed out. Romanus declared they should mount the gargouille's head atop the church with its mouth pried open so that rain would flow through it and not seep into the church. It was only after they mounted the creature's head that, at last, rain once again fell on Rouen. The people watched in awe at Romanus's invention and were impressed at how the gargouille's head redirected water through its mouth. Romanus returned to his own church soon after. His mission had been completed. And as for Philippe, he was pardoned for his crimes, allowed to walk free. He did not look back on the village as he hiked over the horizon. He did not look back to see Romanus, the man who had given him his freedom, watch him go. Romanus departed the village soon after. The Gargouille's head stayed mounted on the church in Rouen for many centuries, and the villagers and their descendants were never bothered by the spirits of evil again. Some even came to believe that the Gargouille's head once a sign of terror and death, had become something of a good omen that warded off monsters and demons. The tale of the gargoyle has a scant origin. Most original sources of the gargoyle story merely relay the basic facts. Romanus fought a creature called La Gargouille in the region of Rouen. He captured it with the help of a condemned man, after burning it alive, he placed the creature's head atop a church, where it functioned as a waterspout. The conclusion of this story, when Romanus allows the prisoner who aided him to go free, is credited as the source for the bishop's privilege. Whenever prisoners were brought out to execution, the bishop was allowed to choose one man to pardon, as a sign of God's everlasting forgiveness. While the legend takes place during the 7th century, when Romanus was believed to have lived, the story itself didn't appear until closer to the 13th century. This was also around the time that stone gargoyles began to be used as waterspouts in Gothic architecture. Because the gargouille was depicted in art as a demon and a monster, the fact that it appeared in churches was a subject of controversy for some time. St. Romanus's story may have been a way for Catholic writers to justify the use of gargoyles in cathedral buildings. Through the centuries and up to the modern day, the presence of gargoyles in religious architecture has been justified as symbolic. The way they divert water away from a structure is said to mirror the evil being diverted away from the church. Additionally, it's likely that gargoyles served as something of a literary device. Illiteracy was high in Europe during the Dark Ages, and gargoyles were sometimes used as depictions of demons or devils in visual stories that the priests would tell to spread the faith. During the Dark Ages, when Catholic priests were trying to convince citizens to attend church, they relied on this kind of striking imagery in order to attract attention. Gargoyles were likely popular precisely because of how disturbing they were to look at, 
and that popularity lent itself to more and more gargoyles being constructed as parts of churches throughout the Middle Ages. However, gargoyles have been a staple of medieval Gothic architecture for so long that it's not totally clear why they became so popular. It's actually likely that many gargoyles from the medieval period were only created due to a creative urge from the sculptor. The creature itself, however, is linked to Catholicism. It stands as an embodiment of evil that, through the faith and effort of a man of God, is struck down and becomes a symbol of the church. Indeed, gargoyles are terrifying to behold. And they're a strange thing to adorn a house of worship. But perhaps that's part of their staying power. A gargoyle represents the capacity for a creature to transform from a being of evil to one of protection. Just as the condemned man may be given a second chance at life, the gargoyle was, in a way, redeemed through its presence on churches across Europe. But perhaps there's a part of the gargoyle that isn't meant to be explained, so that we can project our own anxieties upon it. The stoic stone creature is a reflection of our own fears, our own nightmares, our own existential dread when it comes to the thought of the Almighty, of what comes in the next life, and knowledge that they will still be standing vigil long after our time on this earth has ended. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythical Monsters is written by Colin McLaughlin. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mythical Monsters.